for using the Apostle Paul to bring us these words. God, I pray that you would help us to see the, um, the greatness of who you are and what you've done and what that means for our lives and how we ought to live. And so take these words that, that I've prepared, God, and use them to glorify your name in the good works that you have prepared for your people here. Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, many of you may not have heard of Mel Blanc, but there's little doubt that he was the voice of at least two generations. For more than 60 years, he provided the voice for the majority of the most beloved cartoon characters that any of us know. Uh, he was known as the man of a thousand voices, but to those who knew Mel Blanc, he was more like the man of 1,500 voices. Among the near 1,500 voices that Mel Blanc uh, was known for were characters such as Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzales, Wild E. Coyote, The Roadrunner, The Tasmanian De Devil, as well as Barney Rubble from the Flintstones, Mr. Spacely from the Jetsons. He did all the vocal effects on the Tom and Jerry show. He was, in fact, the voice of every male character in the Warner Brothers cartoon uh, empire, except for Elmer Fudd. And the most beloved character that he was known for was that of Bugs Bunny. Uh, vocal talent who worked with Mel Blanc uh, reported that when they worked with him, it wasn't Mel Blanc that they were working with, but rather when he was in the studio, he was that character. So they weren't working with Mel Blanc, they were working with Tweety Bird. When, when it was time for Sylvester the Cat to show up, it wasn't Mel Blanc, it was Sylvester the Cat that was spitting and sputtering everywhere in the studio. His characters seemed to take over everything in, Mel, in Mel's being. Uh, his characters were an extension of who Mel Blanc was, and it was deeply rooted in his identity. This was proven in 19, January of 1961 when Mel Blanc was involved in a head-on car collision that resulted in a triple fracture uh, of his skull and left him in a coma for two weeks. It also left him with sustaining fractures in both of his legs as well as his pelvis. It was so serious that two weeks into his coma, the doctors at that time were wondering whether or not Mel Blanc was actually going to pull through. And so after trying numerous attempts to revive Mel Blanc, uh, to come out of his coma, his neurologist decided to try one final, though very unorthodox trick to get Mel Blanc out of his coma. The doctor went to the side of Mel Blanc's bed and said in his ear, How you doing, Bugs? To which Mel Blanc responded, What's up, Doc? <laughs> True story. The doctor was shocked and he then asked uh, Mel Blanc, Doc, is, is Tweety Bird in there too? And sure enough, I taught it to a putty tat. He woke up out of his coma and he was released two months later out of the hospital. 
apparently Blank's identity was so rooted in these characters that they were able to help him come out of a subconscious uh, part of where, who he was. And, and all of us find our identity in someone or something. And through this identity, we think that we find life. Mel Blanc found it in his characters. It's our, it's our identity that gives us uh, the reason to wake up in the morning. It's our, our identity that gives us our purpose. It's what gives us our significance. When you meet someone for the first time and they begin telling you about themselves, they are really telling you about what they value in their identity. Uh, people find their identities in their professions. They find them in their social status. They find them in their sexuality, in their role as a husband or a wife, or as a daughter or a son, or as a parent or a, a grandparent. Some people find their, their identity in a diagnosis. Or some people find their identity in how they have been able to overcome an illness. For some, it may be a, a pet owner. For some, it may be as a social advocate for some population in the community. But all of us are rooting our identity in someone or something. The problem with that is that when we root our identities in the things of this world, you and I are setting each other, ourselves up, I should say, for disappointment because life happens and things change health changes our children grow up our relationship dynamics with people change jobs are lost or retirement happens and when we've rooted ourselves so deeply in something for so long and these things change we can experience somewhat of an identity crisis. We forget who we are, why we exist, what we are to do, and what our purpose in life is. This happens in the world, and I'm also convinced that this is very much a reality within the church as well. We have been redeemed by God, but yet we often still seem to experience the same identifiable confusion about our purpose as the world does. So our text this morning reminds us that our identity is rooted in something far deeper than the changeable things of this world. Our identity is never uh, in, in things, but it is, it is rooted in someone who never changes. And because of that, you and I exist for a purpose. And you need to know this morning, and I need to know, that we have purpose and meaning in our lives. And if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to read along with me as I read the words of Paul that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, you and I are plagued with an identity crisis. But let's dig in together and see how God remedied this for us. The first thing we need to see, or the first thing we should do here, is we need to recall our old identity. We need to recall our old identity. When I was a high school teacher, one of the, uh, one of the rules that I had in my classroom was that there was to be no bad news before rehearsal started. It was a regular thing that, that students would come to me, at, we were the last period of the day, and they would let me know that they had this activity going on or that activity going on and that they were going to be gone for that day or a series of days and I was going to lose them for rehearsal and they always wanted me to sign something excusing them from being gone for the class and, um, uh, or they would give me some other sort of bad news and I often did not want to hear about this in the beginning of the rehearsal. Because for me, when I have bad news, I tend to dwell on it a little too much. And so when I get bad news in the beginning of the rehearsal, it, it's not helpful for me, and it certainly was not helpful for the class that I was trying to, to lead and, and to encourage in uh, learning this music. And I think that most of us, if we were asked the question, would you like the good news or the bad news first, most of us would want to answer well, give me the good news first, because we want some encouragement in order to deal with the kind of strains that are about to, to come our way. And up to this point in the letter of Ephesians, Paul has given us uh, not just some good news, but some pretty amazing news about who God is and what he has done. In chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he writes that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is, before anything ever existed, God saw you and God saw Christ and he put you two together. That's a fairly encouraging thing to see. In verse 5 of that same chapter, he goes on to say that in his great love, we were appointed to be sons and daughters of the living God. In verse 13, he writes that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our salvation that is to come. That is, that God has put down a non-refundable deposit on our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit to guarantee that we are his and one day we will live with him and be in complete redemption. And so up to this point, Paul has given us this description of how incredibly good and glorious God is 
is. But as we read the first chapter of Ephesians, it's really easy for us to look at what Paul is writing and to think, wow, God's done this really amazing thing. There must be something really amazingly good about me by which God would, would do this. And so then Paul then gives us the bad news. He reminds us of what life was like before we knew Christ. And in doing so, we realize that before God, there was nothing good in us by which he would draw himself to us. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I'm not sure if there's any more humbling verse in all of Scripture than what Paul writes right there. Before we knew Christ, our sinful nature, including the words we've used, the thoughts we've had, and the actions that we have employed, have excluded us from life in God. And notice that Paul says that there are three excluding factors that led to this. Look with me again in verse 1. And you were dead in your, sin, your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if there was a... Uh, spiritual death certificate that every one of us received, there would be three causes for death. The world, Satan, and the flesh. And what Paul is saying here is that we were controlled by these three things with no hope of changing ourselves. But it's also not that we would have wanted to have changed. Because Paul alludes to the fact here that this is what we also found our delight in. This is where we found our identity in. Paul says this is how we walked. This is what defined us. In verse 3, he even says that this was our passion. It was our desire. Now, you might look at that and you could say, Come on, it, it couldn't have been that bad. I mean, surely I, 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 I said some white lies here and there, but I never killed anybody before. But Paul makes the argument here that really it was, it was that bad for you and for me. You and I were what theologians call totally depraved. Now, that's not to say that we are as bad as we, completely, as we can completely be, but it is to say that our sin and our sinful nature has affected every single aspect of our lives, from our physical being to our uh, mental being to our relational being, and every part of our lives are affected by sin, and it's left us alienated from life in God. And unfortunately, it gets even worse than that. Our spiritual deadness didn't just leave us dead on arrival. Its end was the wrath of God. 
We, we live in this, in this world where it is, this world is so obsessed with misunderstanding God's love that they forget that God's justice is an extension of his love. God loves goodness so much that he must have justice on wrongdoing. God's wrath here is not some uncontrolled anger, but rather it is very calculated, and it is, uh, it is justice for wrongs done against him. And because we were dead, without hope or even desire for help, God's wrath was upon us, and we didn't even know about it. Nor did we care, because our identity was so rooted in the things of this world. But just as verse 1 is perhaps the most humbling verse in all of Scripture, verse 4 is probably the most helpful and hope-filled words in Scripture. Let's look at our second point before we find out why. And that is that we uh, need to receive our new identity in Christ so if verses 1 through 3 paint a, a bleak picture of, of Christ with no hope, how is it that we can change? Well, if we look at, if we take out the parenthetical statements that Paul has here in uh, verses 3 through 5, we can read it like this. But God made us alive together in Christ. Notice two things here in verses 3 through 5. The first one is, is that resuscitation happens externally. Resuscitation happens externally. A patient that has flatlined never grabs those shockers himself, puts that little jelly on it, shakes them together, puts them on his chest, and zaps himself. It has to be done by someone else. So Paul tells us that God here is the external resuscitator in our spiritual deadness. Second, whatever spiritual resuscitation is happening here, it is clear that this resuscitation does not happen apart from Jesus. It cannot happen apart from Christ. Now notice the connection that Paul makes here with our spiritual awakening and the work of Christ. Look back in chapter 1 in verse 19 and following. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus and he asks God that the church would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, if, if you want to know the essence of Christianity, what this whole Jesus thing is all about, this is it. If there's anything that you get out of today, this is, where, this is what you should take out. Uh, this is what you should take home with you. Paul is looking back at Jesus' crucifixion here and his resurrection, but he's looking deeper than that as well. He is saying that when we have faith, when we trust in Christ and what he has done for us in his death and resurrection, it wasn't just on our behalf. It wasn't just that he was a substitute 
for us. But Paul is saying that when we trust in Christ, we have such an intimate union with him that we actually participated with him in his resurrection, in his death and his resurrection. His death is our death. His life is our life. His resurrection was our resurrection. Look with me again now in chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's a, it's a personal twist from chapter 1, 19 and following. The translation is this. Whatever is true of Jesus in chapters 1, 19 and following is true of you if you trust in Christ. And that, friends, is good news. That is a reason to wake up in the morning. And when I think about this amazing truth, I tend to think, why? If verses 1 through 3 are true of me, why in the world would verses 4 through 6 be true of me? And then I look in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So why does God save you or me at all? Verse 4 tells us because it is because he is that good. It's because he is that loving that he loves us in spite of who we are. He overcame our desperate plight. Whereas verses 1 through 3 gives a hopeless outlook. God overcame that in Christ Jesus. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how is it that spiritually dead people, like you and I, helpless sinners, can have true life? Paul tells us that it is sheerly by the grace of God. Surely by his grace. Notice that Paul does not say that we are saved, that we're made alive by faith. Friends, we are not saved by faith. Paul clearly says here that we are saved by God's grace. Faith or trust then in Christ is the vehicle by which God's grace is administered. So we're saved by his grace. And our faith is the vehicle by which it is delivered. It's not in anything that we do or anything we are. It absolutely can't be because we are dead and lifeless without God's grace. So what does that, what does that mean for us then? How do we live? What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to take from this? It means that our identities are no longer found in our occupation. 
is no longer found in being a parent. It's no longer found in being a cancer survivor or a victim of this or that. It's no longer found in our relationships or status. Our, our identity is now found in Christ Jesus and in nothing else. We are in him by God's grace. And if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, verses 1 through 3 is no longer true of you. If you trust in Christ, those things are not who you are. That's why Paul puts them in the past tense. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You once walked in these things. You once did these, but not anymore. Because God's grace has changed you and made you new. You are rooted, identified in Christ. And the fact that our our identity is now found in the Redeemer of the world gives us a new reason to wake up in the morning. Our identity in Christ gives us purpose and meaning, which leads us right into our last point is that we should renew our purpose in Christ. Renew our purpose. Renew your purpose. I should renew my purpose in Christ. About 20 or 30 years ago, there was a show on PBS. Perhaps you remember it. It was called The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. And uh, it was a show in which this guy with, with poofy hair would sit at a blank canvas on an easel and he would, he would take a handful of paints and his little wood paint thingy that I don't know the name of it and he would, what is it? A palette. Thank you. I was wondering all week, what do you call that thing? A paint palette. And he would take his paint palette and he would, he would make these beautiful landscapes and pictures that would just be stunning before your eyes, you would see something going from absolutely nothing to a beautiful tapestry of nature. And the interesting thing about it was that, that he never created these scenes to look anything like what was in front of him. Uh, I've seen artists before in my life where they'll sit down in some nature scene and they'll look at a tree or a flower or a building or whatever and they'll try to paint exactly what they're seeing. Not so with Bob Ross. Bob Ross stood in a black studio with nothing in front of him. And it was clear that he wasn't haphazardly making these scenes. He wouldn't just say, oh, I guess I'll put a mountain over here. I'll make a, what he called a happy little tree right here. He had the whole painting in his mind the entire time and was showing you how to go from step A to step Z in making this, uh, this, this painting. And Paul now completes this section in, in, in verses 1 through 10 on the particulars of our salvation, and he ends up by giving us a unique view of our salvation and the purpose of it. Look with me in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, uh, if you've uh, heard me preach any time before, I don't typically like to get into the particulars of the original language of what the authors are saying. Um, but here in, in what Paul is saying here in the Greek, it's pretty important to know what he's saying. In our text, the translators use the word workmanship. And the Greek word that Paul chose to use was a word that's called poiema, which is the word that we get poem from. Poiema. 
And it is a word that conveys the idea of a creative work and all that encompasses with, in, involved in creating a work of art, whether it be a painting, whether it be a musical uh, composition, or whether it be uh, uh, poetry, whatever it is. Now put that together in the context here, and we see that Paul is telling us that in salvation, we are God's poema. We are his creative work. And when God saves us, he is like a spiritual Bob Ross who looks at our lives and he doesn't just see a blank canvas before him, but he sees a masterpiece that is gradually going to be worked out for his plan in our lives. And look how he paints the story of our lives in Christ Jesus again in verse 10. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand. In other words, you are God's masterpiece in Christ with the purpose of doing good things. You're not saved Simply so that you can come here for an hour and a half on a Sunday and sit in a nice comfortable chair, sing some songs, and go about your day. God has given you a far deeper purpose in your life than that. The purpose is to glorify God with your life. To look beyond yourself and to count others as more significant than yourself. It is to encourage the downtrodden. It is to love the loveless. It is to meet needs. It is to be Christ in a very Christless world. And here's the best thing. You don't necessarily have to sit around and, and worry about how does this look in your life. Paul says that God has prepared these things for you in Christ. He has given you spiritual gifts. He has given you experiences. He has given you a personality to do the work on his behalf that only you can do. What God has called you to do, I can't do because I'm not gifted in that sort of way. I don't have that sort of personality. What God has gifted for me to do is not what you can do. We have unique things that God is calling us to do and to live for him. Now notice the reversal of what's happened here. Whereas in verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we once walked, now in verse 10, we are to walk in the newness of life that God has prepared beforehand by grace. We are not saved by our good works. But Paul is clear here in saying that we are saved for good works. We're saved for a purpose. Notice what Paul says in uh, the letter of, of Paul to Titus in chapter 2, uh, verse 7. Paul says this, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. So, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Look in verses 13 and 14 of what he writes here. He says, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from lawlessness and to purify 
for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he goes on in chapter 3, verse 8, to even say, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You have the opportunity to make other people's lives better because of what Christ has done in your heart. This city should be a better city because Emmanuel Baptist exists. It should be a better community because we are part of it. In verse 14 then, he goes on to say, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So the point here, folks, is God has saved us for a purpose. We're saved to glorify him through how we live our lives. And when we recall our former identity, and when we receive our new identity in Christ, when we, and we, we, we then find our purpose in life, in Christ, you have a glorious role to play in the story of God. So let's renew our purpose and walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. You know, Mel Blanc may have found his identity in the characters that he voiced, Bugs Bunny may have revived him from a coma. But unfortunately, his identity rooted in his characters was not enough to save him from his soul. It was not, it did nothing for him in the long run. And many of us likewise have an identity crisis. We believe that the things that we find ultimate purpose and dignity in this world are ultimately what defines us. But ultimately, they'll let us down. But if we are believers in Christ, our identity is rooted in, in him. And because he died and was raised again to newness of life by grace, through faith, our identity can never suffer crisis. Our identity will never be lost. Our identity will never be stolen. It is bound up in him. And because of that, you and I don't need to be dead people walking. We are alive in Christ. And we can experience life with God the way that it was meant to be. Let's pray together, friends. Father, you've given us a great task to live for your glory, for the good of others. Lord, you have taken us dead, lifeless, spiritually speaking people that could do no good, have made us alive together in Christ in order to show the world the ultimate good in what he has done. And so, Father, I pray for these people here, God, that we would awake from any potential spiritual stupor and that we would see who we were before we knew Christ, that we would take hold of our new identity in Christ and that we would live lives to do good for the world.
so that they may see that you are worthy to be praised and to be honored and to be worshiped. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask if uh, the communion service could please come up while we uh, prepare for the Lord's Supper. It is the first Sunday of the month, and at uh, Emmanuel here we have the tradition of once a month coming together uh, around a table and to remember what Christ Jesus has done for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the day before that he was crucified, he met with his friends in the Passover meal and gave them an institution by which he would be remembered. He took bread, he broke it to symbolize his body being broken for them and by extension for us. He uh, passed a cup, which at that time was a cup of wine. We have grape juice here that is red for an intention is to show that his blood would be spilled on our behalf. And so we come together on the first Sunday of every month to remember, to glory, and to celebrate what Christ has done. This Lord's Supper is for those of us who have uh, put our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented of our sins and have found newness in life in him. And if you're here this morning, and if you're not quite sure what that means, and if you haven't taken that step of faith, that you haven't trusted in Christ, it's okay to pass it up. There's no shame, there's no dishonor in that. It's being honest with yourself and honest with God who already knows where you're at. And so I want to ask that if you're in that position today to just let these elements pass by before you, but not without looking at them, by looking at these tangible elements that show that life was given for you on the night that, uh, well, before I, I, I go into that, um, also, we, uh, if you're new to us, our tradition is to pass out the bread first in silence. Our worship team will come up, and then uh, you hold on to that bread, and then we'll pass out the juice after that. And then when the song is concluded, we will all take together. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he asked us to reflect on ourselves and where we're at. And so before he broke the bread, he gave thanks. Let's give thanks together to the Lord. Lord, your, your, your word tells us to give thanks to you for you are good. Your love endures forever. And as we uh, come to this table, Lord, we're so thankful for what you have done. You have broken your body on our behalf. You have spilled your blood on our behalf. You have redeemed us from the curse of sin. Lord, and because of what you have done, this is not a somber funeral. This is a victory celebration. For you have taken dead people and raised them to life. So would we glory in that? As we hold on to these elements, would we reflect on what it was like to live dead and lifeless apart from you? And would we celebrate what we have found in you? And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen.
We have the privilege of sitting at the table of the king. We're not only invited guests, we are sons and daughters. And he has given us a rich inheritance in Christ. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the the bread and broke it. And he gave thanks and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we get to dine at the feast of the king as sons and daughters. Would you help us to live in light of who we are, redeemed from the curse, made new, and with an inheritance that is imperishable. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. Have a blessed afternoon in the Lord Jesus Christ.